recover sleep, whatever. Uh, in terms of announcements, just want to remind uh, everyone about the um, box of clothes and other items. Hey, you want to, you want to say anything about camp? Well, you can just talk from there. Okay, I'll give you time to make a little report later. And uh, you got a couple of the kids primed for Sunday? Uh, James and uh, Kelly? Kelly. Great. Did you teach the Austin nature? We did, and we saw it. They had empirical evidence. Okay, um, the other thing, uh, just to remind everybody about voting, I think... Uh, Early voting started uh, yesterday and goes throughout this week for the runoff. Uh, the election itself is actually next Tuesday on the uh, on July the 31st. So uh, make sure you come out for that. Immediately after church on Sunday, I took off straight out the back door, caught a plane, and went to Atlanta for a meeting uh, that there were... Uh, uh, it was a pri- private meeting of, of 60 Christian leaders, primarily in the southeastern region, for a special uh, briefing session for APAC. And those of you who don't know what APAC is, that's the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which is the largest pro-Israel lobby group in the U.S. And it was fascinating, and I will give a uh, more in-depth uh, report on that on Thursday, uh, Thursday night, but we the, the, to me the highlight was the speaker we had yesterday afternoon, a man by the name of Elliot Kotoff, who's a major in the uh, IDF reserves. But I've heard now, including the, with the two different trips that I've had to Israel in the last couple of months, plus sessions I sat in on at APAC policy conference meeting in Washington back in March, I've heard a number of briefings and analyses of what's going on in the Middle East, and this was by far the uh, best. Uh, no, no, no comparison. He had more detail, more information, and because we believe that God is in control, it's not scary, but it is incredibly sobering to realize how really, really dangerous uh, this world is and how nutty things are in the middle. I, I don't think in our lifetime we have ever seen anything uh, near as explosive as the Middle East is right now. It is it is beyond anything that anybody's imagined uh, it would be uh, a couple of years ago. Nobody could have predicted that it would be where it is today a couple of years ago with the Muslim Brotherhood taking over basically in Tunisia, Libya, uh, Egypt, uh, complete meltdown taking place in, in Syria. Uh, there, the, uh, Abdullah, uh, king of Jordan, is doing everything he can to try to maintain some level of, uh, of uh, stability there in, in Jordan. And if Jordan were to go down, uh, that just really leaves Israel in a, in a really bad uh, set of circumstances. And, then, and that's not even mentioning Iran yet and what's going on there. So and all of that, even though we think, well, that's over there, the really scary thing is because the U.S. is considered to be the big Satan and Israel, the little Satan, and that's not because we're bigger and they're smaller. It's because uh, they are considered to be the lesser moral danger and the lesser spiritual danger than the U.S. That's what big and little relates to. We're the big Satan because we are the greater moral and spiritual danger uh, than Israel. If anything happens with Israel, the lid's going to go off towards the U.S. So nobody thinks that just because we're on the other side of the world, and uh, according to... uh, uh, the speaker yesterday and other speakers that I've heard, and you hear this and it sounds okay, uh, you sort of understand it, but it picks up a new reality in the Middle East today that there's probably t- tens of thousands of uh, Hezbollah terrorists, which is 
the worst terrorist organization. They make al-Qaeda look like terrorist wannabes. Hezbollah uh, terrorists that have infiltrated the U.S. through the southern, our poorest southern border over the last 10 years. And they're just all sleepers waiting for something to go up so that they can start causing all kinds of damage. So that's the good news. Now, the really good news is that the Lord's in control. So let's uh, <clears throat> take a few moments to, of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to uh, focus on the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have you to come to, and no matter how chaotic the world may be, we know that everything is under your complete and total control. Therefore, we can always relax. We can always rest assured that uh, whatever happens is uh, your sovereign will and plan and that you are moving history in a specific direction that is clearly spelled out uh, in the prophets of the Old Testament as well as in the book of Revelation and that because of that, we can know how things end, we can understand uh, why things are going in the direction they're going, and we can uh, play a vital role in all of this by being a faithful witness, both with our lives as well as with our lips. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the fact that we are living in uh, incredibly, incredibly challenging times and that this means that as believers we should be right there on the front lines of the spiritual battle that is taking place around us we need to be equipped prepared and active actively engaged in every every area of our life uh, from the viewpoint of the doctrine that we've learned and so challenge us with this father we pray that tonight as we continue our study in your word we can uh, also maintain and comfort and encouragement as we study the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, just to pick up context of where we were uh, last time, we are in this part of uh, Acts 8, verses 26 to 40, which is one of the uh, great episodes in the founding of the church, the expansion of the church, when uh, God directed through first an angel, then the Holy Spirit, uh, Philip to go south uh, to uh, along the Gaza uh, rode down to the old, uh, uh, old abandoned, uh, destroyed city of Gaza, and along that road to meet with the this Ethiopian uh, eunuch. In Acts uh, 8:26, we see the directive from the angel of the Lord to Philip to go along this road. Here's a map of the road. Here's Jerusalem over here. This is the Mediterranean on the left of the map. Uh, this is the coastal plain along the Mediterranean. Gaza, which is where the name Gaza Strip comes from, as I pointed out last time, is located down here. The old city was destroyed uh, about 90 or so uh, B.C., and then the Romans rebuilt a newer city a couple of miles away. And this is the road. Somewhere along this road was where Philip caught up with uh, with the Ethiopian. Uh, I showed you some other pictures last time, this picture as well, which is a uh, picture of the <clears throat> uh, old city, the Philistine city of Gaza uh, that was right on, on the coast. Pointed out last time, Philip responds. He immediately goes in search of uh, this uh, individual that, that God is directing him to, and he's an Ethiopian. He's dark-skinned. He's a eunuch. Uh, probably was actually a eunuch, although there's some discussion that this became sort of a generic title for certain high uh, court officials. But uh, because of his position and his uh, close proximity to the queen, who is referred to by her uh, dynastic title of the Kandake, the uh, old King James translated the K, there's no sibilant C sound. That's in in the uh, like in Candace. You have a hard C at the beginning and then a soft sibilant C, like an S at the end. In in Greek, you don't have that. You just have the the K, which is a hard K. Kandake. This was a title for the queen, like Caesar. Later became was the family name of Julius Caesar, and later became the title for the uh, ruler of Rome. And then you have uh, ver- various. Um, Forms of that word 
that showed up in uh, German. Actually, the Caesar was not pronounced with a soft C. It was pronounced with a hard C, Kaiser. That's where we get the German Kaiser, the Russian Tsar. Uh, all of those are cognate words, and they refer, they were a dynastic title for the emperor. In Ethiopia, uh, the Ethiopian system had basically a functional matriarchy. The king was considered so high that he was not to uh, be distracted by the common everyday affairs of ruling uh, the kingdom. And so the actual on-hands ruler of the kingdom was the queen who was given this title. So he is the uh, chief treasurer, which puts him in close proximity with the female ruler. So he would have, that position probably entailed uh, having an, uh, um, a eunuch in, in place. And he is a Jewish proselyte. I went through the different types of proselytes last time, and I said he's probably, uh, because he's a eunuch, not a full proselyte, but a proselyte of the gate, which meant that he was had accepted most Jewish uh, ritual, most Jewish law, uh, but he couldn't be fully Jewish because he was a eunuch. He would was gone to Jerusalem to worship at the uh, one of the three feast days, and on his way back, he's riding in his uh, in his chariot, uh, which would not have been a military chariot, but was probably more of a uh, a little bit larger type of chariot for uh, for travel. In Acts 8.28, we're told that, um, <clears throat> let me see if I, did I skip a verse? No, 8.27, uh, he's returning, 8.28, he's returning to Ethiopia. He's sitting in the chariot reading Isaiah the prophet, and the spirit, uh, through, I believe, an external, some sort of external audible uh, direction, uh, directs Philip to go near, overtake the chariot, get up on the chariot, talk to uh, the Ethiopians. So we're told in verse 30 and 31, Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And so he's there for a short time hearing him read enough of a verse or two to where he's not reading just one or two, the one or two verses that are cited here in Acts 8, but that he would have been reading the, this entire uh, section, probably the section from 52.12 to uh, the end of chapter 53. So uh, Philip asked him the question, do you understand what you are reading? Which is an interesting turn of the phrase in the, in the uh, Greek, and it's uh, gnoskein uh, ha anagnoskein. And so you can hear the alliteration there, gnoskein ha anagnoskein, which ba- basically the first verb, gnosko, would be translated, do you understand, do you really comprehend what you're reading, or are you just reading the story? Now, a lot of Christians are like that. They just they read their Bible. They don't have a clue what it's talking about for various reasons. And so he's asking, do you understand what you are reading? And the word for reading is another compound built on gnosko. It's anagnosko, and it usually means to read out loud. It's the same word used in Timothy when uh, Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the, and it's translated in the King James Version, the public reading of Scripture. It's important. This is one of the reasons why on Sunday morning I read the Scripture out loud. It's not just exposition. It is the public reading. This was often done in the ancient world as a way you memorized uh, the Scriptures. You read it out loud. And even today, that's an excellent way to memorize things is to say them out loud and to um, pick up the rhythm. Now, some English translations aren't very good to use for a Bible translation because the translators did not pay enough attention to the rhythm and the meter of the English language. That's one of the things that the translators of the King James Version did. They not only chose words because they were an accurate translation, but they tried to choose words that would also aid in the rhythm and the meter of the verse as it was read out loud because in that day in England... The scriptures were read out loud a lot. People did not always have have their own copies of scripture, and so scripture was read out loud, so it was translated so that it would sound a certain way. You've often heard people say perhaps that 
they could they can memorize easier in the King James or New King James than modern translations. And this is why, because the translators translated into English with a view towards that the, the meter and the pattern of the of the English language. So he's reading out loud, and Philip Philip hears him and says, "Do you understand what you're reading?" Um, and he says, um, "Well, how can I unless someone guides me?" He uses this word "hodegeo," which means to lead, to guide, to direct. It's used of guiding a blind person. It's used in the uh, Septuagint tr- uh, translation of God guiding or directing the Israelites through the uh, desert, through the wilderness. Moses guiding uh, the Israelites in passages like Exodus fifteen thirteen and thirty two thirty four. This expresses that um, uh, guidance. So he needs someone to tell him what it means. He's an unbeliever. First Corinthians two thirteen says a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned, which means because he's spiritually dead, he's lacking the uh, internal immaterial components uh, to fully comprehend the spiritual impact uh, and teaching of a passage. And so there needs to be further explanation and guidance and God the Holy Spirit can uh, use uses pastors, friends, people to uh, literature to to do that. And so uh, he says, "How can I, unless someone guides me?" And he asks Philip to come up and sit with him. And so he gets up and he uh, gets up on the chariot and uh, uh, begins to read with him. Now, just a note about this: he would have had his own scroll, and that was unusual. It shows that he was wealthy enough to have his own copy. Uh, the scroll was usually about uh, eight uh, eight to twelve inches uh, wide, and would be anywhere from sixteen to one hundred and forty five feet in length, and would have been written in a square. Uh, Hebrew text, and so he was rolling this out as he was riding along in the chariot and reading it out loud. Now, as he, as Philip gets up on the chariot, he continues to to read the next verse. Uh, verse he has a question on, and he says, uh, quoting from Isaiah chapter fifty three, says, "As a lamb before its shearers is silent." So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now, one thing that's interesting here is that in the quotation in the Greek from the, from the Septuagint, the statement is made that, that, uh, he was led as a, uh, sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers. And the word translated lamb is the Greek word, uh, uh, Amnos, which I have there up on the screen, and Amnos is um, a word for the word for lamb that's only used four times, including this passage, in all of the New Testament. And I want to show you the other verses where the word lamb is used because it's uh, very illuminating. It's very this word is extremely significant, as you'll see. In John chapter 1, it's used twice by John the Baptist with reference to Jesus. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 36 of John 1, he says, And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So twice John points out Jesus and refers to him as the Lamb of God. Now this word for lamb is a word that would have had great significance if you were a Jewish listener because you would have connected that phrase, Lamb of God, with the Passover lamb or with any lamb that was part of the of a sacrifice, a lamb that was without a spot or blemish. And then in First Peter, uh, remember Peter had also been a disciple of John the Baptist before a disciple with Jesus. He says, uh, Peter writes but that we are redeemed not with silver and gold or corruptible things from this manner of life, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, omnos again, without blemish and without spot. So those are the only four passages, the two in John 1, Acts 8, and 1 Peter 1.19, that uses this term for lamb 
and it brings into focus the substitutionary sacrificial role of the lamb standing in the place of someone uh, someone else as the worshiper would come and put his hand on the lamb and recite his sins. Those sins were uh, ritually being transferred from the person to the lamb, and then the lamb would be killed bearing the uh, sin uh, penalty. But the question... The question that the uh, that Philip asks is a fairly simple one. He says to um, the eunuch says to Philip, rather, uh, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or somebody else? And so he's confused. He's saying well, he doesn't really understand who this whole passage is talking about. Is this talking about the prophet himself, which would be Isaiah? Or is he talking about somebody else? Now, by the time you get to the first century, there were some uh, other options that had been suggested. Nothing had been really developed in terms of an alternate type of interpretation. But first, the first option would be a historical figure, such as Philip, I mean, such as the eunuch mentions Isaiah himself. Uh, or possibly other ideas that kind of got f- uh, floated around in the subsequent years with Elijah or maybe Hezekiah or, or the prophets. Uh, but none of these had any traction. There's, there's the, the, in the early uh, period of the church, the first century and the period before the first century, the first century B.C., second century B.C., the evidence that we have is that the rabbis clearly understood Uh, Isaiah 53, to be referring to the Messiah, to an individual. They had difficulty reconciling that with their view that the Messiah would come as a ruling Messiah who would give victory to Israel. So they had, by, by the time of the first century, when Jesus came, the rabbis had already sort of, uh, become myopic in their understanding of the Messiah as only a ruling Messiah and not a suffering Messiah. But the scriptures are clear that the the Old Testament scriptures are clear, the Hebrew scriptures are clear, and especially from Isaiah 53, which is so important that that the Messiah is going to suffer and the Messiah is going to die for the iniquity of his people. And he's going to pay the sins not only of, for Israel, but for all people. And that's very, very clear in this, in this whole passage. But they couldn't reconcile the glory aspect of the Messiah with the suffering aspect of the Messiah. And they got the glory before the suffering. And this is why when Jesus came, uh, lowly and humble and not as a victorious conquering hero, that they couldn't put that together. So one option was a historical figure, Isaiah himself, or a prophet, a king. Uh, second option, the nation of the people, Israel. Now, there's some debate over this because it's really not until much later in, the, um, in history that you get a definitive, well-articulated interpretation among the rabbis that becomes accepted that that it tries to interpret the the servant here as the people or the nation of Israel. Uh, there's a couple of passages, a couple of things I saw cited in my research that indicated that this idea was was sort of floated out there, uh, maybe as early as the second century, but nobody nobody bit, nobody was really teaching this, or it, it wasn't it, it it wasn't an idea that grabbed anybody. The primary idea. Uh, up really even uh, through the first uh, millennia of, of the church age among Jewish writers was that this is an individual and this is, this is the Messiah. So <clears throat> that's the third option. Now, as we look at this verse, and we won't get into a lot of the details of the exegesis of the, these two verses uh, for a while, uh, we read, uh, we just in this chart, I wanted to point out the differences, the 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 verse as it's quoted by by the uh, Ethiopian eunuch is um, starts really in the middle of our verse fifty three seven. Of course, you know that chapters and verses weren't there until much much later. Uh, he starts with the sentence: "He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth." 
And then in the next verse, it's, it reads different because he's quoting from the Septuagint. So the Septuagint clearly uh, has a variation uh, from the Masoretic text. And uh, whether it's a paraphrase or whatever the reason is, we'll eventually get to that. Uh, it's, the focus is still the same. So, but you can see there's a little bit of a difference between uh, 53.8 as we read it in an English translation from the Masoretic text and uh, as, uh, Acts 8.33 as we read that from, uh, from the Septuagint. So the focus is on the, this verse that is talking about the servant of God, the referred to as my servant. And what I want to do is take a diversion from our study in Acts at this point and do a study of Isaiah 53. This is such a critical passage to understand, and every now and then I do get some questions on it, and especially in light of of evangelism, this is a great passage. So this will still be part of the Acts study because we're just delving into it a little more deeply. But I want to take some time to go through Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 53. And Isaiah 53 actually starts, the section actually begins at the end of Isaiah 52. So go ahead and turn with me in your, in your Bibles to Isaiah uh, 52, and we will uh, be in this section of Isaiah for a little while, beginning in Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13, with the phrase, Behold my servant. This is part of what is known as, the, as a servant song. I'll get into that a little bit in just a minute. There are four servant songs here in the latter part of Isaiah, which goes from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 66. Among liberal scholars, because the theme of Isaiah 40 to 66 is so much different from Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, liberal scholars in the 19th century who thought that everything in the Bible was cobbled together by editors much later than than the, the claims of Scripture, that Isaiah could not have written these two uh uh, different parts because they had different themes, different focus, different vocabulary, which just shows the the problems of these liberal scholars because there are many, many people uh, throughout the, the world who write as experts in many different, different fields. Uh, Lewis Carroll, for whom we know uh, mostly through, for Alice in Wonderland, also wrote a textbook on symbolic logic. And I would guess, I haven't done this study, I have it at home, but I would guess that if I were to take a computer and do a study of the words that are used in, through the looking glass and the words that are used in his symbolic logic, that there's not a whole lot of overlap. Completely different subject matter, completely different approach to, to literature, completely different style of literature. So it would be just asinine to come along and say, well, he could, Lewis Carroll wrote uh, through the Looking Glass, Alice in Wonderland, he couldn't possibly have written a technical book on symbolic logic. Well, that, that just shows how narrow-minded um, and limited some people are. So there, there's a reason. We, we need to ask a, a further question. Is wh- why would there be this, this difference? Maybe the text can actually tell us. Hello, let's read the text. And in Isaiah 1 through 39, we have a focus on future judgment by God upon the nations and upon Israel for her disobedience to God. But you think through, as you read through Isaiah, it begins with a focus on the future millennial uh, kingdom and the reign of Messiah and the glories that will come to Israel. And then this is followed by uh, various chapters dealing with the judgments on Babylon and and uh, various other nations that surrounded Israel. And it's really depressing I mean, you read through it. If you were reading at that time and you were not living in Israel, you'd think, oh, the world is just going to fall apart. There's going to be horrible, horrible judgments. And God just is this horrible, horrible God. And there's just going to be such chaos. And Isaiah, who's writing in the uh, 600s in the 7th century B.C., is foretelling the, the destruction of the kingdom of Judah 
and Jerusalem by the Babylonians within 150 years because of their disobedience to God. And he's telling them this is what's going to happen. And it's certain, and this is not a happy message. And he's condemning the false teachers and false prophets in Israel at the time. And it's a time of darkness. It's a time of chaos in the world, and it's going to be really bad. But there's hope because it's never that dark because God's in control. And Isaiah 40 through 66 doesn't focus on judgment. It focuses on God's future uh, provision and deliverance of, of Israel and the fulfillment of all of God's promises for Israel and how that no matter how uh, terrible, no matter how dark, no matter how destructive, no matter how uh, horrendous things get, God's still in control, and, there, and therefore, even though it appears to be unstable, it's really stable because God controls history, and God is going to fulfill all of his promises and deliver Israel. So it's a message of hope. So the last um, 26, 27 chapters of Isaiah focus us on God's future deliverance, and so it's a message of hope. So it's a different focal point than what we have in the first 39 39 chapters. And in the heart of this section from Isaiah 40 to 66, the very center of this section is uh, the section at hand, which is 52, uh, 13 to Isaiah 53, 12. And so this is the heart of this message, and it focuses on the deliverer and what he will do to deliver God's people. Now, what's interesting today in the Jewish community is that from what I have read and what I have heard from those who have a background in Judaism and have trusted in Jesus as Messiah and have gone on to be scholars uh, in, in uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, is that certain passages of the Hebrew Scriptures are not uh, inc- are, are not encouraged. Uh, the, the Jews are not encouraged to read these chapters. In fact, uh, according to one one writer, that as in, in the synagogues all read the same passages of scripture every week. There's like a there's a calendar of readings, and they go through the parashat. That's the uh, these chapter readings, these section readings, uh, every every Shabbat, so that all synagogues around the world are basically reading off the same page. And as you come in, according to this writer, as you get to the third uh, Shabbat or Sabbath in August, the reading ends at Isaiah 52, 12. And then the next reading for the next Shabbat begins with Isaiah 54, 1. So that Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12 are not read and they are not discussed. And one of the reasons for this is that during the period of the uh, early church and through the Middle Ages, is that by reading through uh, this particular section, uh, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of Jews became Christians because it was just so obvious from reading through this section that it must have been a prophecy related to the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled this. And so it was uh, basically... uh, Cut out of their, uh, taken out of their, uh, of their reading. But this is a passage that clearly predicts a suffering Messiah, a Messiah who suffers as a substitute for the people so they will not suffer, that the death of this, uh, suffering servant is, uh, not due to anything in unjust or wrong in his life, but that his death itself is an injustice because he is without uh, without sin, and that it is on the basis of his uh, of his death and his substitutionary work that many will be justified. This is in Isaiah uh, fifty three uh, verse eleven. When we get into the New Testament in First Corinthians fifteen one through four, the Apostle Paul talks about the gospel. Uh, and summarizing the gospel says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And for the apostle Paul, the scriptures were the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Old Testament. 
So where do we find the Hebrew Old Testament clearly talking about the fact that the Messiah would die for our sins? Well, it's right here in Isaiah chapter uh, 53. It is very clear that the Messiah is going to die uh, in this way. And this has been one of those issues, if, if not the primary issue, that has caused such a division between Jews and Christians over the last uh, 2,000 years. But, but And so, as I pointed out earlier, it took about 1,000 years or so before this was taken out of... Um, uh, they could uh, reinterpret the passage. Now, if we look at the passage in the introduction, which is in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, this is an introductory summary of what is covered in Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. We have this initial statement, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently or wisely. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So the end result of the work of the servant is that he is going to be exalted uh, extremely high. I mean, they, 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 these words pile up on the Greek. He's exalted, he's extolled to the highest extent. Then uh, verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. That's his, his visage is his facial features. And this indicates that, that he is so tortured, he's beaten um, to a pulp so that no one could recognize him. In his form, more than the sons of men, he, he is physically abused to such an extent that he is completely unrecognizable. And the result of this is stated in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Um, the sprinkling word for sprinkle there is the same word that's used of a priest dipping his hand in the blood and sprinkling it on the altar. It's the same word that's used in numerous sacrificial contexts like that. But he he will so shall he uh, sprinkle what many goyim Gentiles. So this is a clear statement in the summary here that that the servant is not only going to die for Israel, for the nation but and the people of Israel, but also for the Gentiles. His death is going to have a universal application. Uh, kings will shut their mouth at him for what had not been told them. They shall see what they had not heard. They shall consider. It's the, the profundity of the gospel is emphasized there. So according to Isaiah 52, 14 to 15, he suffers for the people of Israel. His blood will sprinkle many nations, and therefore it's clear from these three verses that he will be the Savior of both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now to look at this whole section of Isaiah, we have to understand a little bit of something of its, uh, a little bit of its background, a little bit of its organization. Uh, there are three basic divisions from Isaiah 40 to chapter 66. The first focuses on the, the reality of a future deliverance for Israel. God promises that he will deliver us no matter how dark it may appear, no matter how uh, chaotic circumstances may appear today. God promised a future deliverance. That's in chapters 40 to 48. And within that, you have the first song of the servant, which is in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Then the second division is a focus on the future deliverer of Israel, and the focal point of chapters 49 through 55 is at the very center of this. It we'll see as um, Isaiah chapter 52, 12 through 53, I mean, yeah, 52, 13 to 53, 12. Um, this focuses on the future deliverer of Israel. There are three songs in this section. The second song is in Isaiah 49, 1 to 13. The third song is Isaiah 54 through 11. And then the fourth song is in Isaiah 52, 12 to 53, 13, which is our focal point. Everything builds to that fourth song. And then Isaiah chapters 56 to 66 focuses on the future delivered of Israel. This is the future deliverance of Israel, the kingdom in the future, and what that will be like. So that is uh, all, uh, at the time, of course, that Isaiah wrote it, all prophecy. 
So uh, I mentioned a little bit about uh, the interpretation, a couple of other points that I want you to recognize is that uh, for the most part in the history of interpretation among Jewish commentators, including the Targums and the Midrash, uh, that this passage is talking about the Messiah, and it was understood to be an individual in this passage. However, during the early Middle Ages uh, and the first thousand years or so after uh, after the fall of the temple, many Jews were led to a belief in Jesus as a Messiah from reading this passage. So there were various attempts to try to reinterpret this to the suffering servant is Elijah or the suffering servants Hezekiah, the suffering servants Isaiah. But, but even, and, and even today you have the same, uh, every now and then you have somebody come up with a new interpretation. But uh, most of the time they don't have any traction. If somebody comes up with some new, new idea and he's the only one impressed with it. But there was one rabbi, an extremely famous rabbi, known by the, his uh, nickname Rashi. He was Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki, Shlomo Yitzaki, otherwise known as Rashi, who was revolutionary in developing a new allegorical interpretation, system of interpretation that was applied to numerous messianic prophecies uh, of, of the Hebrew scriptures. And his attempt was to basically remove the Messiah, the, the prophecies of an individual Messiah from the Old Testament. Now, one of the things that was interesting about him is that this happened uh, later in his life as he was older, and he changed his views. Early, some of his early commentaries, in fact, he wrote a classic commentary on the Talmud, and in his commentary on the Talmud, when he was younger, he took an individual messianic interpretation of Isaiah chapter 53. But when he was older, he invented this new system of interpretation and basically reinvented it. Well, when the printing press came along, and the first, some of the first Bibles that were printed uh, also included uh, uh, his commentaries on the Old Testament. That influenced some Protestant reformers like Calvin and a few others so that they also had some of these views that passages that we normally think of as being messianic weren't because they were influenced by Rashi. He had a, um, he had a long, long and negative impact not only in the Jewish community but also in the Protestant community in terms of taking the Messiah and messianic prophecies out of the Old uh, out of the Old Testament. Now, when we look at Isaiah chapter 53, we <clears throat> begin by looking at this, this immediate context and recognizing that uh, this, there's this emphasis on deliverance, but this deliverance comes through a figure, an individual who is referred to in the section as my servant. So we have to ask the question, who is the servant of God? Who is this servant? And there's debate on this. And if you ever are talking with anybody in Jewish in a uh, about this, they will come up with this uh, interpretation that this isn't the servant is Israel. The servant is the nation uh, Israel. And so um, there are a number of different approaches, as I've said already, as to who uh, the the servant is. Well, there are different people identified with different servants. In Isaiah, so it's not like you can say, hey, "Well, every time it's my servant, it's Israel, or every time it's my servant, it's it's the Messiah," because it's not. For example, in Isaiah twenty, uh, verse three, uh, it refers to Isaiah himself. Then the Lord said, "Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign, wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia." So here it's clearly Isaiah, but that doesn't work all, all the time. In Isaiah twenty two twenty, it's my servant Eliakim. In Isaiah 37:35, it's my servant David. So there are different people who are identified as the servants of Yahweh. It's also very clear in some passages that the servant is also uh, seen as Israel, as the people of Israel. Uh, Isaiah 41, 8 to 9, God says, But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. 
you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. So Isaiah 41, 8 to 9, it's clearly Israel that's the servant of God. Isaiah 42, 18 through 20. Uh, here it's a critique, a criticism of Israel being spiritually deaf, blind, and ignorant of spiritual truth. In verse 19, God says, who's blind but my servant? Well, can you really function well if your servant is blind? This is the uh, negative drumbeat, the criticism that the servant has failed to fulfill his role as a servant. In Isaiah 53, 43.10, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 43.10, God says, You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen. Uh, Isaiah 44.1, Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant. So again, this ad- addressing Israel, the people of Israel, as God's servant. Uh, Isaiah 44.2, O Jacob, my servant, 44.21, uh, Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Isaiah 45, 4, Jacob, my servant's sake. And Isaiah 48, 20, uh, the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. So on these passages, it's clear that there are uh, various passages that refer to Israel as the servant of God. But the question is, is that who God is speaking about when we get into these servant songs in Isaiah um, 42 and uh, subsequent uh, these four servant songs. Isaiah also points out the flaws, the failures of Israel as God's servant. Israel is too corrupt and too sinful to fulfill God's mission for them as his servant. Isaiah 1.4, they're called a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord, and they have turned away backward. In Isaiah 29.10, they're in a deep sleep spiritually, uh, and they have closed their eyes to the truth. They have closed their eyes to ignore the prophets and... Uh, those whom God has sent. Isaiah 48, 1, uh, they are, are those who give lip service to God and to the Torah. And uh, Isaiah says, they swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. They are false teachers. So the nation of Israel is viewed as being too corrupt They need a redeemer. How can Israel be the redeemer to redeem themselves when they are in need of a redeemer? So Isaiah presents a second servant, a second servant, and it's the role of the second servant to fulfill the mission of redemption for the people. He's mentioned in Isaiah 52.9 is the one who has redeemed Jerusalem. His role is mentioned in Isaiah 42, 7, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. This is quoted as a, a fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus. When he came, he brought light to the uh, nations and to open blind eyes. Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. So in Isaiah 53, the servant is modified by what noun? Righteous. He's a righteous servant. Can Israel be called a righteous servant? Not at all. Not in light of those other passages I just read. They're corrupt. They are idolatrous. They are spiritually blind. How can they be the righteous servant? They can't. There's a deep contradiction there. God says in Isaiah 49, 5 and 6, uh, now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. So there's a h- emphasis on a humanity aspect, uh, the human physical aspect of the formation of the servant. To bring Jacob back to him. How can Israel bring Jacob back? This has to be a separate entity, a separate person. Uh, the role of the servant is to bring Jacob back so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. 
Indeed, he says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So again, the the servant is given to bring Israel back to God, but that's too small. We're not, we're not going to limit God's grace to just bringing the Jews back. God's grace goes to all the nations and all of the people. So it's clear from the context that the servant seems to be an individual, not the nation uh, Israel. Two servants are in view. Israel initially, but the only servant who can provide redemption is the servant mentioned in Isaiah 53. Now, when we look at the organization of this section, as we begin to approach it from 52.13 down to 53.12, it's formed in a chiasm. Now, remember, a chiasm is a literary device that it organizes uh, uh, words, lists, uh, organize topics or explanations in an order so that they have a, a certain flow, A, B, B, A, a, B, C, B, A, uh, A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And here we have A, B, C, then B prime and A prime, where A prime mirrors the statement, uh, the initial A statement. B prime will mirror uh, parallel, the initial B statement. And the C is the centerpiece, so that there's a focus on the servant's glory in light of his suffering in Isaiah 52, 13 to 15, we come to the end of chapter 53, there's an emphasis again on the servant's glory in view of his suffering. Uh, the servant's submissive character is emphasized in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. His submissive character is again emphasized in the passage quoted by, uh, by the um, uh, Ethiopian in Isaiah 53, 7 to 9. And the centerpiece is Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. The reason it's called a chiasm is the Greek letter uh, key is the letter X. And so if you take the letter X, as I put it up there on the screen, and line it up, that it's the center point that's the emphasis. It's not that the other points aren't important, but it's a rhetorical device that is used by a writer to focus the reader's attention on something. Remember in the ancient world, they didn't have all those font faces you have on your computer. They didn't have boldface and italics and underlining. So they used these kinds of literary and rhetorical devices to focus people on their, on their message. And so the focal point of Isaiah uh, 53 is on the, that center section of 53, 4 through 6, on the role of the servant as the substitutionary atonement uh, for the people. Now, as we get started, we won't get very far in our first verse. I want to look at this opening introduction at the end of chapter 52. Behold, God says, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than form more than than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. So, in looking at this first verse, he start. God starts off with this typical introduction to the servant song: "Behold, my servant." The Hebrew word there for behold is the word hine. It's, it's uh, giving a command to come to attention, to pay attention, to look at this, to wake up, watch this, look. It, it's bold face. It's highlighted. Uh, behold, pay attention to this. Look at this. This is something important to listen to. And he, so he starts off saying, behold, my servant. So he speaks out in praise of his servant and to focus their attention on the servant. Now, what's interesting is the way this connects with other statements related to behold and servant that we have in the other prophets. Now, remember, Isaiah is written in the 7th century B.C., so it's written somewhere around, um, you know, six. 30, 640, 650 B.C. You have Zechariah, which I'm going to go to in a minute. Zechariah is written 
after the Jews have returned to the land somewhere around uh, 515. So it's about maybe, um, uh, I think it's with, with Isaiah, I said 622, I meant 7. Um, uh, 650, yeah, that was right, 650. And so this is about 150 years later that Zechariah writes. So he's referring back to what Isaiah has said. Zechariah assumes that his readers know Isaiah. So he says, Here, O Joshua the high priest, that's Joshua the high priest at the time of Zechariah, not Joshua of, uh, of uh, fighting the battle of Jericho fame. Uh, Here, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign, for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Same terminology, behold my servant. But now we have something else added to it, to, to clarify the picture, the servant is called the branch. Well, this is an important term because it comes out of Isaiah, used in several other uh, New Testament passages, that the branch is a term, a messianic title. And in Isaiah 11.1, 1, Isaiah wrote, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of, or the root of Jesse. So what's happened is that it's picturing the house of Jesse, the descendants of Jesse, as a tree, but the tree's been cut down. There's a stump there, and now there's going to be a new shoot, a new branch that's going to come out of that trunk. And the way that was fulfilled is it looked like the Davidic line ended with the defeat of, of Judah in 586, and they they come back under Zerubbabel, who is a Davidic descendant, trying to reestablish themselves in uh, in Judah after the Babylonian captivity. And then as you go through that intertestamental period, it's just like what happens to the Davidic line? It just disappears. And then all of a sudden you have the beginnings of the Gospels and Jesus is and his lineage is given in both Matthew and Luke. Matthew to show he can't be the descendant, uh, uh, the physical descendant of Joseph because Joseph came from Jeconiah and God had cursed the line of Jeconiah. And so Matthew 1 is given to show us that Jesus cannot be the physical son of Joseph. Luke is given to show that he is the physical son of Mary and he has a direct line to the Davidic heirship through his mother uh, Mother Mary. So out of the stump of Jesse that appeared to be dead, the family of Jesse, the Davidic line, a new branch is growing forth and will bring new life uh, to the kingdom. This is also stated uh, some hundred years after Isaiah by Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness or a righteous branch. Uh, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Then 10 chapters later, Jeremiah says, In those days and at that time, referring to the future kingdom, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So the future branch is righteous. This is the same thing that we see in Isaiah 53, that he is this, the servant here is, is righteous. He is called in Isaiah 53, 11, uh, my righteous servant. So there's that connection. Now, the other thing we, we learn here is that this is his, his name, but he is a man. He is fully human. Zechariah 6.12, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. This is referring to the future temple that Ezekiel described uh, in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 40 and following. So we learn that the branch is a man. He says, behold the man. The Latin form is ecce homo, which is what you see uh, uh, written now inscribed on an archway on the Via Dolorosa, which is allegedly the path that Jesus walked down from uh, where he met with Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate brings him out to the crowd and says, behold the man. So here we have, behold the man whose name is the branch. So the focal point here is on the br- identifying the branch as the man. And also in Zechariah 9, 9, we have the same word, behold again, behold your king is coming to you. He's just and having salvation, lowly riding on a donkey, 
a cold, the foal of a donkey. So we have behold the branch, behold the, the man, behold the king. And then in Isaiah 49, uh, 40 verse 9, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains of Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So this is the beginning of the servant section in Isaiah, and now it is behold your God. So we have behold the man, behold the branch, behold your God, so and behold your king. So all of this connects together in terms of the different roles of the servant. He is fully human, he's fully God, he is the king of Israel, and he is um, he is the the branch, the descendant. Of, of David, so all of these titles pull together. He's called the branch of, uh, of, of Yahweh in Isaiah verse, chapter four, verse two. He's the branch of David, as we saw in Jeremiah twenty-three, five and six. He's called my servant, the branch in Zechariah three eight. The man, uh, Zechariah six twelve. The man whose name is the branch, and the man, the servant, the son of David, the son of God. All of these tied together. Well, when we get into the New Testament, we see this connection of how this phraseology that we have in Isaiah pulls together in terms of the presentation of Jesus in the four Gospels. For example, Matthew is all about presenting Jesus as the king. Matthew is the gospel of behold the king. Uh, the placard that is placed over the cross by Pilate. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, Matthew 27, 37. Again and again and again through, throughout uh, Matthew's gospel, there is this emphasis on Jesus as the King. In Mark, the focus is on Jesus as the servant. The branch is the servant of Yahweh. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. In Luke, the emphasis is on Jesus as the Son of Man, the Son of David. Uh, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then in the Gospel of John, the focus is on the deity of Jesus. He is the Son of God, as we see in John 20, 30, uh, John 20, 30 and 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the what? The Son of God. So that's the focal point. Now, in Isaiah 52:12, Israel, by this point, Israel, the first servant, has failed and is replaced by the second servant who is faithful. We have passages like Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. I will behold, Jesus says, or the Messiah says, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is written in my heart. When we get into the New Testament, in Philippians, Jesus is the one who emptied himself as the second person of the Trinity and took on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. So when we get back to our passage in Isaiah 52:13, the servant is the one who deals wisely or prudently uh, with his people. And, and uh, we'll come back to that next time a little bit to deal with the words there, but that's also applied in Jeremiah 23, 5 to the branch. Uh, God says, I'll raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper. Same word. So we're connecting these ideas and he's going to be exalted and lifted up very high above all of the angels. An ancient Jewish Midrash said he would be higher than Abraham, higher than Moses and higher than the, uh, than the ministering angels. He's higher than Abraham because he is the uh, son of God whose day Abraham looked forward to. He's higher than Moses because he's the mediator of a better covenant according to uh, Hebrews chapters uh, 7 and 8. And he's exalted above the angels, Hebrews chapter 1. That's all Hebrews 1 is about. Jesus is higher than the angels. And what's the result of this? He's exalted above everyone. This is Isaiah uh, 52.13, he is exalted, extolled, and very high. And we see that in the, the great servant passage for Jesus in Philippians 2, that he will be exalted by God, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. So by looking at this, we just got into the first verse, I want you to see how the themes that are in Isaiah 52, uh, 13, all the way down to 53, 12, 
are pulled together by later prophets after Isaiah. They tie all these things together, and then it fits integrally with everything in the New Testament about Jesus. So it all comes together. And you, you can't just go in and pick it apart and tear it apart and say, well, I'm only going to look at this part, not that part. Uh, you have to look at the whole thing. So we're going to come back next time, probably for three or four weeks, going through Isaiah uh, 52, uh, 12 down through 53, or 52, 13 down to 53, 12, to get a good understanding of this remarkable prophecy from Isaiah. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to come to an understanding of the fact that Jesus wasn't an accident. He wasn't just somebody who came along and had a religious experience, but that he was planned from eternity past and that he is the incarnation of yourself, the second person of the Trinity, that he could come to earth, became a man for the purpose of fulfilling these prophecies to die on the cross for our sins, that he might justify the many, as Isaiah 53, 11 says. Now, Father, we pray that you would just really encourage us, strengthen us from the study, recognizing that there have been dark days throughout all of history. There are dark days now, uncertainties now. There were uncertainties then, but you are in control, and therefore we can relax and trust in you because nothing is stronger than your power and nothing is higher than your authority. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.